Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm glad to welcome a fantastic writer onto the show. Yasuko Tan is an author and short story writer from Victoria, British Columbia. She's won the Journey Prize along with the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, the author of both Floating Like the Dead and The Mysterious Fragrance of the Yellow Mountains. Her latest book is also her first memoir. It's called Mistakes to Run With. She left home at the age of 15 and lived on the streets. She's been a busker, an opium dealer, and worked as a sex worker while she was still a teenager. Her book is about all of that. Today, she teaches creative writing at the University of Victoria. She's also a part of the punk band 12 Gauge Facial, and her book, Mistakes to Run With, is brave, it's honest, and it's gripping. Here's her story. Well, I think congratulations are in order, first of all, for your new book being out, Mistakes to Run With. Uh, it's been released just today. Today. Today's the day, yeah. How long has this one been in the works for? Um, I've been working on it in earnest for two years, but um, a lot of the material that was in the book I treated as fiction earlier on in my writing career. Um, some were published, some just stayed in the drawer, so... Two years plus, <laughs> plus many. <laughs> I guess they say whenever it comes to memoir, it takes a, a lifetime until the, the book is released to, yeah, uh, for that not. to happen. But, uh, but this is your first memoir. You've yeah. done short fiction before and uh, you've published a novel before, but, but now memoir. Why was this the time to tell uh, the story? Because my publishers finally decided to let me. <laughs> um, no, I think that, uh, I mean, that, that was part of it. They were, um, my editor and my agent were concerned about me being pigeonholed as, as a certain type of writer. And my agent is also Evelyn Lau's agent. And as you may know, she was, you know, kind of dragged through the mud by the media and, you know, they sensationalized her work and uh, she didn't have a super pleasant time of it. So I think they were afraid that that was going to happen to me and um, were reluctant to include any of my so-called like street fiction in my earlier collection. Um, But, uh, you know, but it's interesting because, you know, we waited until I had a couple books under my belt before we came out with the memoir because they didn't want people to be prejudiced against me. But of course, you know, that's exactly what the book is trying to fight against, is just that type of prejudice. So it's a little ironic. Right. Hard to, uh, hard to avoid, I guess, <laughs> regardless of timing, I suppose. Yeah. The book, the way the book starts, we're in Vancouver. It's 1988. Uh, you're on a street corner. You're 17 years old and selling sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a heck of a way to open a book and uh, to get somebody to, to turn the page. And granted, this precludes a, quite a long answer and maybe a myriad of answers, but uh, what led you to that place? I was convinced that I knew everything. I mean, what 15-year-old doesn't? You know, by the time I was 17, I was... Um, I was maybe a little bit less convinced, but I was already on that path. Um, so, yeah, like like you said, I mean, I think that uh, it takes the whole book to sort of <laughs> um, explain some of the things that led me to that place. But 
Essentially, I've always really loved the quote, uh, and I'm not sure who said it, but rebellion is always a pursuit of values. It might have been Camus. And um, unbelievably, I mean, that's what I was looking for. I sort of saw myself as some kind of, you know, Siddhartha-esque figure just moving through different walks of life trying to learn the lessons I needed to you know? Sure, teenage rebellion, independence, <laughs> some uh, some all those things yeah. in the mix. Yeah, yeah. You come from a family of four. You're your older sister. You're an older sister. Yes. Uh, what was family life like for you growing up in the early years before you ventured off on your own? Uh, I I um I was a weird kid. You know, I've said this before. There was this one side of me that was deeply religious and there was this other side of me that um you know drank and smoked and shoplifted and uh got into all sorts of trouble um and I think that the religion in which I grew up the evangelical religion helped me to justify that kind of weird split personality behavior by imagining that the devil and and god were battle for my soul <laughs> <laughs> so you've got these two two influences maybe that's simplifying but yeah there so uh there's a there's this time period i don't know what age you would have been at the time but uh paraphrasing a quote from the book but you're writing about how it is probably making sense now, years later, but how you must have been a bad girl, but you didn't know what made you so at the time. Can you speak more to that? Whenever I need to speculate, even about myself, it always feels like we're writing some kind of fiction, right? Because um, at the time, I didn't know what was drawing me to certain kinds of behavior. And even now, the things that I come up with are just ways that we invent to explain behavior that still puzzles us. So, I mean, I can give any one of a number of answers that suits different types of ideologies, you know, like there'll be a feminist ideology about growing up in a household that was led by, you know, like a dominant um, father and a mother who had this, you know, sort of I, I think I say in the book, you know, neutered responses is very much like that. Or, you know, there's all different things I could point at, but when it comes right down to it, I don't really know. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. The, the past is always framed through whatever lens you want to look at it through. And exactly. uh, however you choose to look at it, then shapes what it becomes. Yeah, yeah, and that's what's so great about it, right, is that you you get to write it. <laughs> you get to change the story and... Um, Make it so that it suits your present character, right? Uh, which is uh, probably a natural tendency for a writer, too, I would think. <laughs> uh, something we're drawn to. When you were 15, so 15 is when you left home, mm-hmm. what were the sorts of things that you learned uh, about life on the streets, life as a homeless person, what it, what it took to adapt to the, your new environment, your new surroundings? The main thing that I noticed was how um, either invisible or how hated you became by most of the people that were just walking past. Uh, But as a result of that, the community which I became a part of was very strong. I mean, that's, that's an intense bonding factor, you know, when the rest of the world is looking down their nose at you. So, um, 
yeah, I felt that intensely and not just from society, but from the so-called helping organizations, uh, you know, the police, definitely social services, um, etc. So that was, that was the biggest thing. Yeah. What, what is the community like? What, what was that community for you? Um, well, it, at the very beginning, when I was still dealing drugs in Victoria, the corner that I worked, like that whole half a block, had different little families. Like all of us were one big family, but within that, there were little pods, you know, that were the people that, you know, you would go get a hotel room with that night if you could afford it or, you know, go get your breakfast with or whatever. And so, um, yeah, it was like a huge extended family. And then, you know, your core of brothers and sisters, right, in your own little group. And so when you left home, did you leave school at the same time or did that happen before or after? Oh, I, oh, I don't even know if this is in the book. Yeah, something, something kind of funny happened. I was um, kicked out of school I was, because I was still going to school, even as I was on the street. Mm-hmm. And I was still on the honor roll, and I was making it to all my classes. And one day I was honest to goodness sick, you know, and so I called my father and said, the school's going to be calling you to let you know that I'm not there, so please just lie for me. And, you know, I mean, you don't have to lie, just I'm actually sick. I'm not going to school. But so the school phoned him, and he was honest with them and said, well, I don't know where she is because she's, um, you know, not living at home anymore. And then as a result, they kicked me out. And I took them to task. I I went to the school board and said, they can't do that. How how can they do that when I'm still on the honor roll and still making it to all my classes? And so I won my case, uh-huh. and they were forced to take me back, but I didn't go. That was just my, huh, I'm back. Now, fuck you. Yeah. I'm leaving. <laughs> Moral victory. That, yeah, exactly. Right. We get them to admit that they were wrong, and you yeah. were right. Yeah. yeah. Again, see, that's the prejudice and the stigmatization. And, you know, all of a sudden, oh, you're that kind of kid. Because, you know, well, what is that kind of kid, right? I mean. Yeah. So you're still going to school, but you're homeless. What are you carrying around with you? What are your possessions at the time? Like, what, what is your life contained within if you're, if you're going from place to place? Um clothes and varying degrees of dirtiness my curling iron that was the big one and I would find you know like gas station bathrooms or hotel like the Empress Hotel they had plugs in their bathrooms it's hard to find like bathrooms that have plugs so when you find one it's like yes you know because I always wanted to make sure I looked pretty even if uh you know (laughs) I was leaving on the street. Yeah. So the curling iron, that was the most valued possession for you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Books, too? Were you bringing books with you or was there writing? Were you keeping a journal at the time? No, I think I would have been writing on like little bits of paper and stuff. Uh, Because I always did keep a diary and then I can see that my entries, you know, from that time. Actually, I must have had it with me. Yeah, my diary must have been with me, but the entries became spotty. Yeah. So you have some clothes, uh, something to write in, uh, and and a curling iron, and uh, and that's uh, that's what you're you're carrying around with you as, yeah. you as you're going through life. Yeah. At some point during these years, you meet Jay, 
for the first time, as he's named in the book, uh, Jay being your first pimp. What drew you to Jay at the time? Well, by the time I met Jay, I wasn't in school anymore, but I was living in this house with a bunch of bikers. And, um, and you know, they're great, sort of like your classic good old boys, right? But uh, Jay was just so exotic to me because he, uh, I remember he had this pink suit. It was the 80s, right? But he looked, you know, like all Miami Vice. He has, you know, jerry curled hair and this suit that kind of glimmers. And he knew how to dance and he listened to soul music. Like I'd never even heard of soul music before, right? I mean, we were just Black Sabbath and ACDC and, you know. So I was like, wow, who is this exotic creature? Yeah, and he was he was friends of my roommates, so that's how he ended up at the house. Yeah, so you go along with Jay from Victoria to Vancouver. That was your first time going to Vancouver then, or moving to Vancouver, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think we, we kind of hopped back and forth quite a bit, but Vancouver was probably home base because that's where he had some family. His sister lived there. What did uh, life look like for you once you moved to Vancouver? What, what was kind of your outlook at the time, if you were looking forward to anything? Um, I was just trying to maintain this illusion that what I had with this person was love, and therefore that made everything worthwhile, which was, um, you know, in my... 15 or 16 year old brain you know if I just give him enough money then he'll really really love me you know uh yeah so it was just about learning how to be the best sex traded woman that I could be you know sadly (laughs) so Jay was the first Uh, and the next pimp we're introduced to in the book is Avery and you had been working without a pimp for a while in between what drew you to Avery at that point in time in your life? Well, one of the things that kept me with him was, at least in the beginning, he pretended to like me. Jay didn't even bother trying to pretend. Um, there's a scene in the book where I come home to the hotel that we're staying at and walk in on him with another woman, and he gets mad at me as if I've interrupted him. Like, it was just totally fucked. So, um, yeah, Avery was a better actor. (laughs) But there was also the fact that I had been um, working what they call the high track, uh, which was controlled by pimps. um, And I had been pretending that somebody was my pimp who wasn't. And uh, then I heard that this person was coming to town and I started to get a bit freaked out. So... Um, according to the rules of the game, you know, you uh, choose somebody and then you don't have to worry about that. Or if you do, then your man will deal with that. So so there are, there are rules to the game as, as far as who can work where and yeah. what you're allowed to do as an as a individual person versus working for somebody. Are there more rules or, or general kind of code of conduct that you have to watch out for? Yeah, um, I guess on the street, for us, undercutting would have been the big one. Um, so we controlled the, all of us girls did, controlled what the prices were. And, you know, if everybody just sticks to that, then it's no problem getting what you ask for. And, um, yeah, and certain types of behaviors, too. If, if you knew that there was a particular girl who was, uh, say, practicing not safe sex, um, that's just not 
that's not cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you write about Michelle. There's kind of there's there's mm-hmm. you <laughs> being yourself, Yusuko, and then there's Michelle, and there's uh, and there's also this reference to the shadow and the self. This kind of splitting between the two. What did that alter ego or that split between you as a person and uh, and alter ego provide for you, if anything? She got stronger as the years went on, and that made things yuckier for me because I began to see that, you know, like the way that she was acting were not aspects that I wanted to have as part of my personality. So, yeah, you can create this artificial divide, but it only lasts, you know, (laughs) for a while. I mean, she was, um, yeah, she was robbing people and she was um yeah doing things that weren't what the weren't you know examples of the kind of person that I wanted to be when did you manage to join the two halves incorporating the two halves into a whole if that is I'm still working on that. In fact, it wasn't until I started writing this memoir that I began to see that indeed there had been a split. It wasn't even something I recognized, and uh, it still really isn't, except for that friends will tell me when she pops out, um, which she still does, and I am still struggling with ways to, you know, either integrate her or get rid of her or, yeah, but she just pops up and (laughs) cusses people out. So throughout the book, there's this goal, this light at the the end of the tunnel of $500,000. That's what you're trying to save up for when you're working with Avery. What did that figure represent to you? Yeah, the light at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, like even, I think even at the time, I knew that that was a fiction that was never going to come true because we didn't stack anything. We were just burning through all the money. So, you know, I think a naive part of me hoped that um, my pimp had a shoebox somewhere that he was putting money into or something. But, um, you know, the what that goal represented was... Once again, true, true love, because if your pimp retired off the street with you, then, you know, it meant that uh, that there was something more there. Something reciprocal, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You know, so the idea was that we were going to save money and then we were going to use that to invest in a business and, uh, you know, just live happily ever after as normal, <laughs> hardworking people. Uh, there's a time period uh, with Avery in the book. You're you're living, I think you're living in East Vancouver at the time, and you have a basement grow up going on. That was in um, uh, Coquitlam. Coquitlam, yeah, farther east than than Vancouver. Yeah, what uh, what was the the business plan at the time, or what was the what was the operation? What was the goal? Um, oh, that was great. Yeah, we had two rooms on the go, and. Um, it was cycled so that every 12 weeks we would be able to sell the crop from the one room and get a paycheck. And yeah, 
It's awesome. I love plants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how much are you writing at this time? And what are you writing? Uh, at this time, I wrote a lot of poetry, and I also began sending stuff off. Um, bad poetry, but uh, yeah, I was um, sending it to different literary magazines and going to the library, usually at least once a week, and just like devouring all the how-to-write books, you know, like I read every single one on the shelf and then began reading all of the literary magazines. And uh... So you're still working the track and submitting stories to literary magazines. When did you get your first response, whether that was an acceptance or rejection letter, and what did that do for you? Oh, I got a really nice rejection letter from Quarry Magazine, and... Uh, even though it was a rejection, that note that was sent along with, and, and I didn't realize that, you know, it was actually kind of unusual for an editor to do anything except for just, you know, put the rejection in the envelope and sign it, right? But there was, you know, a couple of nice words, and um, they sent me a complimentary copy of their 20th anniversary issue, and that's where I discovered Caroline Adderson's story, um, Oil and Dread, which really turned me on to, to short fiction. What did Caroline's story spark in you when you read it? Uh, kind of, if you could situate yourself in time, what you were writing at the time or reading at the time, and then what that story represented, if, if it marked a change in motivation or anything like that. Yeah, uh, who was I? I think um, Herman Hesse was my favorite writer up to that point, and uh, Salman Rushdie. Oh, and I, I really just adored all of the uh, the Russian writers, Dostoevsky and uh, Chekhov. And, um, but there was something in her language, you know, that was just, like, so crunchy and so alive and so, like, it, it was like the poetry, but in a short story. And I didn't even understand what was happening, you know, um, in terms of the story's narrative, like the language was just so full of imagery and so uh, unlike anything that I'd read before. And voicey, super voicey. And then I thought, wow, this is fiction. Like, this is what fiction can do, you know? And so um, I sat down with it as, as if with a puzzle, right? Trying to figure out what was happening on a, on a line level. What was your first publication, your first byline? When did that come about? How did it come about? I sent a short story to a contest that the Federation of BC Writers was having. And um, and my story uh, won. It was one of the ones selected to... Um, so they were picking 20 stories, and all those authors were going to go to um, workshop with Jack Hodgins. And uh, and it was a short story about a girl who lives in a house with a bunch of bikers. <laughs> um, yeah, it was autofiction, and uh, she's convinced that she's HIV positive. And so, yeah, that's what the story was about. When you're writing at the time, like, was, was writing the end goal? Was it a career goal at the time, or what did it represent to you? I think what it still does is it was just... Um, it was just like a place to go where you always feel at home, right? Or just where you always belong. So it wasn't necessarily about this is going to be my, my career. I'm going to carve my place as a writer and it's going to be the next 
I don't know how many many years of my life I'm gonna I'm gonna write stories to make a living, but it was more about a, something else. Yeah, well, I mean, here's an example. If I had a frustrating day, or if or if someone had hurt me, or you know, I'd be like, fine, fuck them. I'm gonna go write, or you know, if you're crying, you go write, or. Yeah, not so much when you're happy, but it was that place to go when when things weren't going well. Travel was the other thing. Uh, in addition to you have this kind of target of $500,000 that's going to represent your freedom in one way or another, travel was another indicator of freedom for you. What was what was travel for you? Oh my god, suddenly you can you can just be anybody and what that also means is that you can really be your essential self and because you're away from any points of reference, you know, um, your friends, your work, your house, your whatever, you're just, you know, all of a sudden you're free from all that. And so, you know, it's such a cliche, you travel to find yourself, but, um, but you kind of do, especially if you're traveling in places where it's a different language and you don't know it that well yet, um, that sort of removes you then also from the society in which you're a part of. Um, So, yeah, just like looking at yourself more clearly and being able to figure really out what you want. In one case, uh, travel for you, you go down to Mexico, and this is as you're leaving Avery, you go down to Mexico and spend, actually I'm not entirely sure how long, how long did you end up spending in in Mexico or or Central America, and, and what did that time period what was that time period for you? Well, we traveled together twice. The first time we traveled, it was um, two months. And then the next time we traveled, it was six months. And um, the first time created such a big change in our lives that I never went back to the track. I was working, I think, the night before, or maybe two nights before we left to travel. And... Um, the last trick I had was a bad date, and then we left and just decided when, you know, because it, it gave us enough room to see, wow, like another way of life kind of is possible, right? You get stuck in this way of doing things. And um, yeah, so when we came back, we just decided to, uh, no, it wasn't even a decision. It's like, I didn't go to work that night. And then again, not the n- next night nor the next, and it just, I just never went back. You ended up busking on the streets of Vancouver for a while. What was that time period like? What were you, what kind of songs were you playing? Are they originals? Are you doing (laughs) covers? Uh, What what did that kind of snapshot of life look like? Well, that was fun. Not so much fun in the winter, but super fun in the summer. And um, yeah, the the people who so I was busking in Gastown, um, right across the street from this uh, little cafe, and they kind of adopted me. Whenever it was cold out, they'd run across the street and give me hot chocolate, and they even invited me to their Christmas party. Like, uh-huh. They were so nice. And um, when I first started, I think I knew about five five or six songs, and I just played them like over and over, and uh, I library my go-to I just went and photocopied as much music as I could and taught myself to play a little bit more so by the end of it I was playing uh you know maybe 25 songs it was all the busking standards right Simon and Garfunkel Neil Young 
yeah right sure the stuff that people know and can sing along to and, and all that right. kind of stuff yeah. yeah and where were you living at the time when you were busking uh for a while, I had a couple of really great studios. There was one on the corner of, like, Kitty Corner to the Camby, so Cordova and uh, Carol, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that place was great. Somebody um, had been living in there previously, so, so even though it was an illegal living space, they built a shower over top of the toilet. It was awesome. <laughs> So you could actually, like, take a shower in there, and it drained into the back of the toilet tank. And there was this brick wall that looked out, like, the brick wall separated us from the alley, but one brick was missing. So you'd be standing there taking a shower, and you could look out like this at all the people walking up and down the alley, <laughs> digging through the dumpsters, or fighting with their girlfriend. Or <laughs> That was your, your bathroom window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is sort of a departure from uh, your story, but more about process of writing on mm-hmm. its own. Where do the ideas for your stories come from? I would say about half of them in the first collection are autofiction, so based on my own life. And then the others are based on people whose resilience I found really attractive and um, wanted to learn more about. So writing about the Darcy Island leper colony, for instance, um, it's the the underdog that I'm always attracted to and rooting for and... yeah. Like if you're thinking of something new to write about, those ideas, where where do they come from? Well, I think we, we all have characters that just live in our heads you know and uh we're trying to think of the best way to represent them on the page I don't know it it comes in bursts sometimes and then other times I maybe it's different parts of the same thing like uh different parts of the process where you know the initial writing will come in a burst but then you can sit down and apply your analytical skills to it and that's when you ask yourself questions like you know, is this a character that needs to be part of the dialogue? Um, is this character underrepresented in fiction? And, you know, what's the point in writing about this character as opposed to, yeah. Yeah, what is that drafting process like for you? How do you get from a, an idea or an inkling of an idea to something eventually that looks like a story that you're ready to share with other people and, and aren't so protective about, you know, it's not, it's not ready yet? Um, I love the way John Gould described it in a class I had with him once as following the hot spots. So that's what I do. Whatever is on fire, that's what you set down on paper and then just follow that, you know. So people have called me um, an intuitive writer and I guess that's pretty close to the truth. The problem in doing that, though, is you might come up with 200 pages, only which three you'll use. You know, um, because if writing is 20% for me, revising is certainly 80%. The thing about writing as well is uh, it's, I mean, it can be a very difficult endeavor, a lengthy endeavor to see something through to completion, especially if it's a novel or a book. Uh, It's a long period of time and one with uh, all sorts of uncertainty about whether it, you know, if someone's going to want to publish it, whether it's going to succeed. Or even whether or, those are characters you want to hang out with the next couple of years. Sure, right? that too. you're going to be seeing them every single day. So you have to think, 
you know, like, am I attracted enough to this character or their surroundings or whatever to just, like, really be down in the trenches with them for that long? How do you protect the the joy of writing or the process of writing from the external expectations of, uh, you know, I'm counting on this to sell this many copies or to win this award or to be nominated for this or make this book list or whatever whatever the external stuff is? How do you shield the actual writing from those things getting in the way? You just have to put up a big mental wall. Yeah, you just got to build that brick by brick and realize that, um, you know, if you don't want lack of publication or lack of attention once the work is out there to speak negatively about your work, then you can't simultaneously say, oh, this prize says I'm a great writer. You know, it's just both have to be not part of the equation at all, which is way easier said than done because, of course, it's all about just buying yourself time, buying yourself more time to be able to do the next project. And unfortunately, that depends on things like publication or sales or, you know, so... But again, you just have to not think of that. Like, don't think about the rent being due and, you know, (laughs) just get to writing. Uh, This is uh, another quote from your book. I might be paraphrasing here. The streets had taught me many things, but not how to move forward while keeping the past a secret. Uh, Could you speak to that? Uh, Bringing the past into the present. Well, I'm just starting on that process now, and it's going to be exciting to see how the next days and weeks and months play out because even though I've never been ashamed of my past it's also not something that I've talked about with even my closest friends you know um lovers partners yes uh but you know my best friend and I have never sat down and you know played the what's your trauma (laughs) game and I think I've always looked for friends who were sort of private in that way as well um and yet it's such an important part of being whole to not that it has to come up in casual conversation but just that it can if it does and you're gonna feel okay about it have you started playing that game with friends now of <laughs> sitting down and talking? Or, or are you starting to get calls from friends saying, uh, hey, we've known you for this long and we haven't talked? <laughs> no, not yet. Although some people have gotten a hold of me on my Facebook who um, remember some of the stuff from the memoir. And so that's been kind of delightful. Also sad in some ways because I have learned that quite a few more people had passed on than I was aware of but um yeah what do the next number of months look like for you now that the book is is finished and out um you know that's kind of maybe the dreaded question sometimes always the what's next question but what what is next for you I had this great idea we'll see if it turns out great it's an experiment right now but um so a couple weeks ago I printed up that manuscript, I think I might have mentioned to you that I wrote this like whole sort of autofiction novel in one burst, right? 50,000 words of what ended up being mostly narrative summary. It was so bad when I reread it. Um, but then I was looking through my old files and found another 
book that I've been working on off and on for like seven years, and it's totally changed shape since then. Originally, it was supposed to be a story about uh, Julia Pastrana, um, the woman whose body was completely covered in hair. She was a 19th century sideshow performer, and she traveled with her manager, who became her husband. And um, like over the years, the narrative morphed from, you know, her perspective to the perspective of a strong woman in the circus to the perspective of the manager and so on and so forth. But I found those rough drafts and then decided that I should mash them together. So I'm doing a mashup right now and it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Yusuko, thank you so much. Uh, Is there anything else that you'd like to share? If anybody listening happens to be in Vancouver on April 27th, my partner and I are putting on a show called Trigger Warning. Uh, We're going to be celebrating the release of Mistakes to Run With. Um, We're going to be playing some tunes, some original uh, material, and uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Come on out. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Yasuko, her latest book, Mistakes to Run With, is out now. I've read it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review. Most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.